Again, Paul is teaching us from Luke 12 this morning, beginning in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let's pray together. Father, we quiet our minds and our hearts before you now and we acknowledge that you have established your throne in the heavens and that your kingdom does indeed rule over all. We thank you for your word and we ask, would you please teach us by your word this morning through your servant Paul, bless the work of his hands, um, join it with the work of your spirit. Help that teaching move our minds to understanding and help our hearts yearn for you in deeper ways. In your name and for your glory, amen. Good morning, everyone here, everyone at home. One of the biggest challenges that every follower of Christ faces in life is keeping our eyes focused on a God that we cannot physically see. 
Uh, the Bible says that in this life we walk by faith and not by sight. And it can be so difficult to do that at times, can it? I mean, it's one thing when life itself disappoints us. Most of us expect that. We know that we're going to face challenges and, and sorrows and disappointments. But it's a different thing when we feel like God himself is letting us down. When he doesn't seem to be acting on our behalf. Or when the things that we long to feel and see and experience from him. Things that we feel like we should experience in the Christian life. Just aren't real to us. They're, they're just not present in our lives in the ways that we sense that they ought to be. And when we wonder sometimes why God always seems to be taking his time and not responding to the things that we think that we need. And if you've ever struggled with any of that, or if you're struggling with that today, congratulations. You're perfectly normal. In fact, do you know what the number one question that is repeated in the Bible more times than any other question is? It's this. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and have sorrow in my heart? Prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? And David, of course, cried out to God, How long will my enemies triumph over me? How long? A disappointment, discouragement, doubt, frustration with God. All of these are, are common struggles that not only do you and I deal with, but Christians from every generation have dealt with those things. And thankfully, we have a book, the Bible, that gives us permission to struggle honestly with the question in life, God, how long? And the Bible encourages us to bring that question before the Lord. And it does so itself in all different shapes and forms but it doesn't leave us without an answer. And the answer that the scripture gives us is this, not long. It won't be long. Well, we're working our way through the book of Luke this uh, summer, and today we've come to a place where Jesus is teaching to a crowd uh, of people who have gathered to listen to him, but he's also teaching specifically to his group of uh, disciples, and today he's going to teach by means of a parable. Uh, Jesus' parables were pithy stories that he uh, told which were not only creative and interesting and relatable every day and easy to remember, but but more importantly than all of those things, they were rich in meaning for those who had ears to hear them. And what's going to happen today is Jesus is going to share two parables. Uh, one of them is very positive. In fact, I think of it like an unexpected kiss. It's a surprising expression of the depth of God's generosity and his mercy and his love for his children. 
And the other parable is quite disturbing. In fact, it ought to startle us with God's relentless commitment to justice. And what both of these parables are meant to point us to is not what we are presently experiencing around us today. Not what we're presently feeling inside of us even. But these are two parables that invite us into the future where we catch a glimpse of what God promises he will one day accomplish on earth. And in the meantime, what the parables do is they train us a little bit more about what it looks like to live by faith and not by sight in the meantime. So we're going to start with the first uh, parable. Mary Kay did an awesome job reading it to us this morning, but I want to read it again. Take a look at verse uh, 35. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So what you have here is a parable that imagines a group of servants who are waiting for their wealthy and uh, prominent master to come home from a grand celebration, a wedding feast. And as was appropriate and expected, part of the duty and responsibility of those servants was to receive their master when he arrived home. And when that happened, he would knock at the door and the servants were expected to be there to greet him and let him in and take care of all of his needs. Now, back in that day, just as is true in our day today, a wedding would often last late into the night. And the plot or the, the conflict of the parable is that these servants, after waiting a long day, are starting to get a little drowsy. And yikes. It's possible that the master isn't going to return until the second watch of the night, which, uh, according to the Jewish uh, time uh, scale, that would have been around uh, 10 o'clock to 2 a.m. Or, Jesus says in the parable, it's possible that he might not even arrive even until the third watch of the night, which would have gone all the way until 6 a.m. So it's not just that the servants are tired, it's that they have no idea when to expect their master home. It could be at 10 p.m., it could be at 6 a.m., it could be any time in between. And yet Jesus makes the point that regardless of how long it might take, they are to keep their lamps burning for him and to be dressed for action. They are to be standing by at the ready prepared for his arrival at any time. In fact, uh, to emphasize this, Jesus adds a shorter kind of mini parable on top of this one. It's a little bit like Russian nesting dolls. Look at verse 39. He says, if he comes home in the second watch or the third, oops, sorry, that's verse 38. Verse 39. I'm told I might need to get bifocals, and I'm starting to believe that that's true. But know this that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Now that part is a little bit 
confusing because Jesus kind of twists the parable a little bit. He, but basically what he does here is he compares the master who is off at a wedding to a thief who's about to break into a home. And if the homeowner could know exactly when the thief was going to be breaking, breaking, breaking in, the thief could easily be stopped. However, since thieves don't tell you when they're coming, but instead they always arrive in an unexpected time, the homeowner would have to be continually prepared for his arrival all night, standing by, waiting. Basically, Jesus is just using two ways to say the same thing. The master is going to arrive home unexpectedly, just like a thief in the night, and could come at any time. So Jesus says what they need to be is they need to be ready. They need to be prepared. And the point of the whole parable, Jesus tells us at the end in verse 40. He says, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Just like these servants, Jesus says, we too must be ready. Now, the New Testament teaches that at some point in the future, at the end of this age, our master, Jesus, is going to return to this earth. And that he will do so not just spiritually, but physically and, and visibly. We are going to look up one day, if we're still alive at that time, and see him coming in the clouds. And we are told that at that time, he will bring with him simultaneously both final judgment and final salvation into the world. We call this future event the second coming of Christ. First time Christ came, he was born into poverty. But the next time he comes, the Bible promises he will be revealed in all of his glory. We will see him as he truly is. One day, the Bible tells us our King, Jesus, is going to return. But like the servants that are in this parable, none of us knows when. Now, for centuries, there have been people who have speculated on when Jesus will return. But the problem with that is that no human being has access to that information. If someone forwards you an email predicting the time of Jesus' arrival, how many of you have gotten one before? It's probably best to mark it as spam. Because in fact, Jesus himself about this said in Matthew 24 that concerning the day and, and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, he says. So Jesus himself didn't know, but the Father only. Now notice the passage doesn't say the father only and the person who wrote that email that was forwarded to you. One thing I just want to notice about that verse that's so encouraging is that it tells us that God the Father has a specific date in mind for the return of our king. In other words, on his heavenly calendar someplace, there is a day, an actual day, that that event will happen. And we do not know when it will be, but we do know that it will come. And we are also told 
that it could happen at any time. In, in fact, the Bible teaches that the return of Christ is imminent. Uh, what that means is that it is at, it's close at hand, at least from God's perspective. And whether that means next week or a thousand years from now, we don't know. But we do know that when it occurs, it's going to happen suddenly. It's all going to come down very, very fast. And all of a sudden, this age is going to be over, and the new one will begin in an instant, in the blink of an eye. Now, just because Christ's return can happen at any time, that doesn't mean that there aren't certain signs or prophecies that the Bible gives us that it tells us will be fulfilled first such as the Bible says that the gospel will be preached to all the nations. However, whether or not these signs have been fulfilled is really difficult for us to measure right now. And probably what will happen is those things will become increasingly clear as the return of Christ grows nearer and nearer. Now, when we find ourselves feeling discouraged, frustrated, or disappointed, or even angry with God. And when we find ourselves saying to him, like so many in scripture have, how long, oh Lord, when? The New Testament teaching on the return of Christ helps us by reminding us that the Christian life is not a race without a finish line. It's not an event where we just keep on running and running and running and it goes on and on and on and on and on with no relief. This world as we know it has an expiration date. And one day Christ is going to physically, visibly, powerfully complete his plan for all of life on earth and bring his children into a new and glorious age. He has not forgotten you. He is coming back for you. And in the meantime, what this parable does is it teaches us two things. First of all, that we're gonna have to wait. Waiting is normal. And second of all, that while we wait, we are to do that not just passively, but actively. In fact, that's how Jesus starts the parable. He, he says in verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And what that means is that we are to look expectantly towards the return of Christ and to live in such a way that if Christ's return should happen this very afternoon, and it could, it really could, that he would find us awake and, and not asleep, that we would be ready for him, expecting him, glad to see him appear. And look what else. Jesus says that if his servants are ready, if they haven't fallen asleep, he says then something extraordinary is going to happen. Look at verse 37. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come 
and serve them. Okay, so Jesus says that rather than the servants serving their master when he arrives, instead the master is going to change out of his tuxedo to put on a house uniform and serve the servants instead. He is actually going to invite them to recline at the table. He is actually going to take care of all of their needs. This is the unexpected kiss. Something like this would have been unheard of in that day. And it is unheard of in ours. At 3 o'clock in the morning, after he's just returned home from a party with some of his old buddies at Microsoft, Bill Gates is not going to change into a uniform, invite his servants to kick up their feet on his fancy couch, and ask them if they're in the mood for him to make them an omelet. The parable's ridiculous. It's crazy. But Jesus isn't kidding. What is it that is given to the faithful servants of the master, those who are ready, those who are awake, those who are waiting for his arrival? Great reward. This is God's love. This is God's generosity to us. This is the gift of the kingdom of heaven. One of the biggest challenges that every follower of Christ faces is keeping our eyes focused on a God that we cannot see. A God who feels to us sometimes absent in our lives. But this passage reminds us that he is not. That Jesus is coming, and it implores us not to believe otherwise, not to fall asleep while we wait. So let me ask this. What, what does this look like? What, what does this mean for us? Uh, what does it mean to stay dressed for action and to keep our lamps burning and to be ready as we wait for the arrival of Jesus our King? Well, Paul's advice to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, was that Timothy would do his best to present himself to God as one approved. Uh, being ready for the return of Christ, I think, is a lot like that. It's, it's not something for the super-Christians among us. By the way, there's no such thing. <laughs> it's not rocket science. It's not complicated. It's not mysterious. It's just living your life to the best of your ability in a way that pleases the Lord each day. I think the phrase that I would use that best describes this is waiting for Christ to return is just living as best you can with everyday faithfulness. It's just the basic stuff. It's seeking to love God, seeking to love other people, living an honest life, cultivating a repentant heart, avoiding sin, not getting all worked up over useless controversies. It's living a life that relies on God's help and power, not just our own self-effort, so that his spirit can empower us and produce fruit through our lives as we cling to him. 
And as we do that, the hope is that when Jesus arrives, anytime, like a thief in the night, we will be found ready by him and not napping in the corner. We'll be glad and not embarrassed. And so in the meantime, we wait patiently and expectantly and faithfully with the recognition that what this parable promises is true, that it will be worth it. And that's the idea of the first parable. Now, I want to move on to the second parable, and I have to warn you, the second one is quite honestly not as pleasant, okay? At least initially when we read it. Uh, this parable comes about when Peter asks a question. He wonders if the first parable that Jesus told was directed just towards the disciples, or was it aimed at the crowds who were also there and had gathered to hear Jesus' teaching? And rather than answering Peter's question directly, which Jesus often doesn't do, have you noticed that? Uh, sometimes Jesus doesn't answer people's questions. Sometimes he answers questions that they should have asked instead of the ones that they did ask. And, and we feel at times, too, that he doesn't answer our questions, right? Apparently that's normal. Well, anyway, Jesus decides to tell them the second parable. Let's read it together through verse 45, 41 through 45. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or are you telling it for everybody? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his servant will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So in this next parable, rather than talking about all the servants in general, what Jesus is going to talk about is, is a human manager who is responsible for the oversight of all these servants. You might think of it as their supervisor that, that is under the master, but over the rest of the servants and tasked with making sure they get their food on time and, and all the servants are taking care of, things like that. And Jesus says, if the manager does a good job caring for those underneath him, then something wonderful is going to happen. That upon the master's return, the manager will be rewarded by being set over all of the master's possessions. This is a great promotion so that what belongs to the master his beautiful home, all of his fancy cars, the yacht in the Cayman Island, islands, there's more than one. All of that will now effectively be at the disposal of this manager. And we ask, well, what's so bad about that? Nothing. I haven't gotten to the bad part yet. We got to keep reading. Verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat, beat, think about that, to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him 
and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. So if that manager abuses his position, or more specifically, if he exploits the people who were under his leadership, beating and assaulting the male and female servants that he was hired to look after, gorging himself on the master's food and popping the cork on whatever he can find in the wine cellar. And when the master arrives home unexpectedly, to the surprise and astonishment of that manager, he will be cut into pieces and thrown with those who are unfaithful. Gulp. Those are sobering words. Especially for those whom this parable seems to have been intended for, and that is those who serve in positions of leadership, but who use those positions not to care for and to serve those that they are entrusted over, but who use and abuse those people for their own benefit instead, and who take advantage of the resources of the master. Now, Jesus clearly had the Pharisees in mind here. Okay, it's not hard at all to see the correlation. The, the Pharisees were the spiritual leaders in Israel in that day, but they did not serve the people. They used the people. Look, read through the, the Gospels. You see that at every turn. Jesus certainly had them in mind. Jesus probably had Judas in mind too. Judas, who was Jesus' betrayer and who used to help himself to the disciples' money bags when nobody was looking. But this parable also seems to be a warning to all of the disciples and to anyone else who would take on the responsibilities of providing leadership, especially spiritual leadership, to others. And what Jesus says is there is great reward for leaders who serve faithfully but there are extremely serious consequences for those who do not, for those who abuse their positions of leadership. Now, the violence that is done uh, in this parable may seem a bit harsh to us at first glance. However, it shows us two very important truths about God. First of all, that God absolutely abhors justice and abuse of any kind. He hates it. It disgusts him that one of these managers would beat and harm 
these servants. Psalm 11 says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. First of all, God absolutely abhors injustice and abuse. And second of all, he absolutely abhors it even more when these abuses are perpetrated or perpetuated by the very people who are entrusted with providing for and protecting and caring for those who are underneath their authority and leadership. God is a God of unfathomable love. And part of that love includes his commitment to justice. He is a God who takes up the cause of the downtrodden and the exploited and the victimized. In fact, he stands with the victim and against those who perpetrate crimes against them. And these behaviors, especially if they are carried out by so-called Christian leaders, eventually reveal that that Christian leader is Christian in name only, that they are unfaithful, meaning they were not ever really a Christian in the first place, and that their behaviors demand the just judgment of God. For a good God would ultimately never allow these kinds of abuses to go unanswered. You know, it's interesting that among evangelicals today, there seems to be a growing suspicion of the concept of justice. Uh, issues like racism and poverty and the exploitation of immigrants and women's, women, uh, uh, things like these are, are sometimes viewed as issues that are of a very liberal agenda. But these are serious problems that every Christian should care about because they are a part of God's agenda. God cares deeply about these things because God cares deeply about people. And because justice is not just something that's a, a, a part of God on the outside, it, it is rooted in his character. And so God expects no less from us. Remember Micah 6 8? You might have sang a song that was this verse at summer camp. I did. It says, he has told you, old man, what is good. God's told you what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, we should notice that in the parable, the judgment is administered in degrees according to the crime. Okay, here what we find is that some offenses are worse than others. Uh, there are some who will commit these sorts of uh, sins, you might say high-handedly, knowing full well exactly what they are doing, and there may be others who will still be punished, it says they receive a light beating, not as severely because they were unaware of exactly what they were doing. In other words, God's judgment is not just a matter of who's guilty and who isn't. There will be various of reward. However, what Jesus does 
in this parable is he makes it clear that there is a higher standard for leaders. Uh, at the end of this passage, he says that to whom much is given, meaning much responsibility over people, much authority, much influence, much will be expected in return. A, a leader is put into a position where they are given the opportunity to be a great help to other people. But they also have the opportunity to do great harm. And so the more that God entrusts to a person, the more he expects from them. So again, what we have here in this parable is Jesus warning his disciples, as you wait for me, be careful how you treat the people that I love. I am watching. And those in leadership positions should take heed to this. And those who have been wounded or harmed by those kinds of leaders should know that justice will be served. And that's the second parable. Now, there are times in life when even though we feel very sleepy and tired, it's important for us to stay awake. You know, when you're driving home at 2 a.m. and you've still got an hour to go before you pull into the driveway, you have got to stay awake. It's important. Or when your four-year-old wakes up absolutely miserable with a fever and a bad cough in the middle of the night, we stay awake with them. In fact, if they're our children, we're glad to stay awake with them. We need to stay awake with them. Or when you're scheduled for the midnight shift at the hospital and, and your patients are counting on you to take care of them, they're sick, they're hurting, you grab another cup of coffee and you fight to stay awake. Is it easy to do so? No. Is it worth it? Is it important? Does it have value? Absolutely. And in these parables, Jesus reminds us that if we stay awake, if we keep our lights burning for him, if, if we're ready, if we're dressed for action as he, we await his return, he says we will not be disappointed. He will not let us down. And in life, when we cry out, how long, oh God, how long will life be so disappointing? How long will injustices continue? How long will I have to struggle to walk by faith and not by sight? God answers, not forever. My blessings and my judgments are coming. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Let's pray. Lord, some of us in this room, as you know, since you know all of our hearts, are having a really hard time walking by faith. In fact, I would venture to say that in different ways, all of us are. 
But some of us are quite tired. Some of us are feeling uh, spiritually discouraged. Uh, Some of us this morning are quite anxious. Others of us are depressed. Some are struggling with nagging health issues or a fog in our brains that just don't go away. Some of us are struggling with sins that we just feel so defeated by. And we ask this morning, would you, by the power of your spirit in our lives, help us to lift our sleepy eyes to you? And would you teach us in our own complicated lives what it means for each one of us to live for you with that kind of everyday faithfulness that you would help us to do our best to present ourselves to you as one that is approved. And yet we thank you and we rest and rejoice that our final approval is found through the cross. Our final approval is given to us not as a work we are expected to perform, but as a gift that only Jesus could provide for us through his death for our sins on our behalf. Father, we look back and we see that Jesus was good enough and strong enough, loving enough, just enough to die for us. And that gives us hope that those same things will be true when he comes the next time. And that they're true now, even now. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen.